Easter, and you're listening to the Shift to Freedom podcast, the podcast that gives you the mindsets, strategies, tips, and tricks to live your freedom and love your life. If you're here, I suspect that you have a total badass inside you, but chances are that you haven't let it play full out yet. Maybe you've been told not to, that it's too much, maybe you've been worried about what other people will think, or maybe you just haven't made the space to shine. If any of that sounds familiar, you've come to the right place. Each week, my co-hosts and I will be exposing the lies that keep that badass chained and, more importantly, sharing the tools to help you break free and share that most authentic you with the world. So, if you want more freedom, possibility, or courage, then I'd invite you to take a deep breath, get curious, and listen carefully for your shift to freedom. my lovely wife Paige Easter today and we are discussing the sword and the stone and all the various metaphors and lessons that we can learn from this story. I forgot how much I loved this story when I was a kid, the the cartoon version of the sword and the stone. It's very different than some of the others. This one's from the 60s, so it's it's an older one. I remember watching it all the time when I was a kid, but as an adult like I didn't remember like the plot so it was interesting to watch it again through like the eyes of an adult i vaguely remembered the various like transformations but i couldn't have really told you what the movie was about um even though i did mm-hmm. watch it a bunch when i was a kid so it was really fun to go back through we'll do a quick recap if you haven't seen it or you haven't seen it recently when the story starts the old king uther pendrag has died and left no heir. And so a miracle appeared and the sword in the stone appeared with an inscription that says, whosoever shall pull this sword from the stone and shall be king of all Britain. And uh, But it's been years, long enough for vines to grow up over the thing and nobody's been able to pull this thing. And uh, and so then we, we zoom in on Merlin. Merlin's this kind of crotchety old wizard who apparently can see the future. And uh, he's just very grumpy the whole time. I thought it was really an interesting choice for the this character. But anyway, uh, Arthur drops in on him and Merlin begins to teach him. Presumably what he needs to know to be king. Merlin knows that he has some famous future, but they never tell us what it is throughout the whole story. We're not, we don't really know what this future that he's preparing him for is. And we don't even know if Merlin knows it. Anyway... Merlin proceeds to uh, take him under his wing. They go back to the castle where he lives, where he's been adopted. Uh, he goes by the name Wart, and it's the adopted dad and adopted brother who are apparently vaguely abusive, uh, you know, for his own good. They obviously care about him. There's a scene where the dad specifically says, like, I care for the kid, but then he comes in and he starts yelling at him, immediately sends him to the kitchens. That's like Wart's story of his life is he keeps getting sent to the kitchens to do scrubbing. And uh, Merlin starts to take him through these um, transformations, basically. He turns him into a fish, and then he turns him into a squirrel, and then he turns him into a bird. And in each one of these vignettes, he has to face some different challenge. And then uh, as a bird, he runs into Mim, the magical, mystical, marvelous, mad madam Mim. (laughs) And uh, she's a villain. She is uh, kind of death incarnate. She roots for sickness and illness. She wants to see things die. She wants to destroy Wart. And uh, then Merlin shows up to save him. They have a sorceress duel where he outwits her. And then they're going to have a tournament to determine who's going to be the next king because the Sword and Stone has sat, you know, for so long. And so Wart gets to be the uh, squire of Kay. They go to England. 
oh no, I forgot the sword, he says, back in the hotel. So he has to run back to the hotel while the tournament's going on, only to find that the hotel is locked up tight. But alas, there's a sword in the stone in the middle of this courtyard. So he you know, pulls it out, the lights shine, and the angels sing as he approaches the sword. He pulls the sword out, brings it back to Kay. Kay's like, that's not my sword. And then they realize it's the sword in the stone. Everybody's like, oh, somebody's pulled the sword from the stone. Hooray, huzzah. And they don't believe that he did it, so they take it back to the, the stone, put it back in the stone, and apparently the magic works again. Nobody can pull it out. There's like 20 people trying to pull this sword out. And so then Arthur goes up, he pulls the sword. Huzzah, we have a new king. Long live the king. Merlin, meanwhile, has gotten pissed off at him and he went to Bermuda. Arthur calls for him for help because he doesn't know what he's doing as king. Merlin comes back and we find out that all along, the true reason that Merlin was, <laughs> was prepping Arthur was so that he could be a puppet ruler installed for Merlin's benefit. That's my own interpretation. <laughs> that's story. your interpretation. And then the story ends. Anything that I missed? No, I think that that's pretty pretty good summation. I think maybe it's worth just double-clicking on the three transformations that he goes through. There's like three lessons. One where he becomes a fish. And he kind of is encouraged to use his brain instead of his brawn to escape this kind of, I think it's a, it's a pike, but it's like a very vicious looking fish that tries to get him. The second adventure he goes on is as a squirrel where he's faced with the loving embrace of a very nice female squirrel. Who Last annoys him he... and, won't let, and won't let him go. <laughs> she just keeps chasing him around and being in love with him. Totally. And then the last where he gets to fly, he gets to be transformed into a bird and learn about what do you think the lesson is there in that little segment? Or is that just like the setup for him to come in to encounter um, Madame Mim and then be faced with death, maybe, or something else? Well, the dark night of the soul, so we can talk about that Mm -hmm. in a minute. But yeah, in each one of essentially, there's a predator that he runs into in each one of the vignettes. Pike, the Mm -hmm. evil fish. And then the the squirrel, who is really the temptation to lust or whatever. And then in the bird, he's just got a predator from above. Because part of what's going on in this is Merlin is saying, you've got to be prepared. If you're going to be a powerful person, you have to learn to defend yourself from all angles and you learn to use your mind. Um, And so that it seems like that's what happens in each one is to like... Mm-hmm. train him to become competent, presumably to, again, to pull the sword from the stone and mm-hmm. be the king. Yeah, I think it's also interesting. Merlin is a really interesting, like, in the hero's journey, the archetype of the, like, the helper, like, the guide. He's kind of an interesting guide, and he comes in with this idea that to be successful, you have to have education, and you need to like study all of the sciences and Latin and the arts, etc. Yeah. And Arthur's kind of like, well, I'm studying to be a squire. Like, I want to learn to fight and I want to do all these things. And Merlin's like, no, 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 no. Those are not how you become successful in the world. So I think it's this kind of interesting positioning of brain versus brawn and kind of the exploration of maybe not one versus the other, but finding balance within the two or finding like both are valuable and like, how do we balance that? What do you yeah. think? Well, and I think that it's really interesting because the sword in the stone being the symbolic representation of what it will take to have the rule of law. So we've got the, like the next king has to be the one who can pull this sword from the stone. Okay. Which is really interesting because there's like a few different things going on there. One is, 
a sword is uh, intrinsically a symbol of war because it's used for battle. And that was why it was created in the first place. But there's also another interpretation of swords, which like the, the tarot deck, for instance, the deck, the, uh, the suit of swords is all about the mind, the keenness of intellect and the, the sharpness of the mind, being able to differentiate and discern different characteristics and qualities in the world. And so here we have in one symbol, both kind of the fundamental battle in the, in the story that we have. There's the, the fight between like might as right, you know, it, for, a wart wants to be Kay's squire. He really wants to be a knight. It's like so important to him. But at the same time, there's Merlin who's saying it's not enough to be a knight. You, you have to have a proper education. You have to learn to use the sharpness of your intellect. You have to learn to outsmart mm. your environment to win in the world. And so there's like this dichotomy. Mm. And it's so interesting too, because it's almost like he has to become worthy to be able to pull the sword. Cause when it's in the stone, it's safe. It can't be used to attack anyone. But when it's pulled, Mm -hmm. it now becomes a weapon. And so the whole story is sort of preparing him to be able to take responsibility for the weapon that is the crown, the might of the crown and the might of the Mm -hmm. armies of England. And and again, just even the symbol of the sword that can Mm -hmm. do damage to people. Yeah, I was thinking about kind of Arthur in the story is kind of, in a way, kind of preordained to eventually fit into this role, similar to um, Aladdin being like the diamond in the rough. I'm reminded of the concept, like the Buddhist principle of Dharma, that there's like each person has some sort of purpose or like path that they're meant to fulfill. And it seems like the story of the sword and the stone is kind of illustrating all of the different preparations and trials and tribulations and lessons to be learned to become the kind of person to end up in their preordained path, like kind of follow their purpose or like be developed enough to step into that role that they're really meant to step into. Yeah. And I think this is really interesting too, because we, as humans, we have this desire to fulfill our potential. Most people listening to this will be like really familiar with the you know, gosh, I, I just want to reach my potential. I just want to, you know, make it to where I I'm, I was supposed to be all along. And what's really cool about this story is that you see the the kind of the winding, twisting path that destiny takes. You know, for example, Merlin is very against the idea of Arthur being the squire of Kay. For him, it's buffoonery, two people swinging swords at each other. This is like it's such a stupid waste of time. And throughout the whole story, he's like, you've got to sharpen your mind and ignore war. And yet it's only because he is the squire of K that he happens to be in the right time at the right place to Mm -mm. pull the sword from the stone. And so I think there's, there's something really cool and really powerful about this idea of walking the path that's in front of you, even Mm -hmm. if it's not the quote unquote right path. Because we don't know what the path that's in front of us actually holds. And so even though he's like doing something that's totally quote unquote out of alignment for him as a person, he is following his heart and it winds up leading him to what his true destiny is that Mm -hmm. he's been inadvertently preparing for his whole life or being prepared or groomed for. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited that you mentioned this because I love the idea of this theory called happenstance learning theory. Mm -hmm. And it's this 
there's part of our development and our learning and as we're like unfolding there's different perspectives we can take on like what does it take to become a developed person and some of those things are like the resources that you have access to or like your family and the culture that you grow up in and the kind of geography playing a role or like um what kind of schooling you get and then there's this theory about just happenstance like it can't be accounted for in any other way except that sometimes you're just in a certain place at a time and that exposes you to something that is life-changing that is just part of your path and kind of unfolds. And I just, I love that idea of we can try to plan and we can try to create with an in- intention. And also, as long as we're continuing to move forward and show up, these things are going to come into our path unbeknownst to us like what those could potentially be and create a reality that we couldn't have possibly envisioned and it takes being like the character of Arthur of just being like I know there's something out there that I want and just be in progress of taking action and moving towards things and then he becomes king which wasn't really his plan he was just trying to be in progress it's interesting because he kind of doesn't even want it even at the end he's like oh yeah. man I, he tries to run away from it and then he like calls merlin for help that's why i'm like all the while merlin's just been grooming him to be this puppet ruler because he doesn't actually want to be the king it seems it's so interesting because again merlin he represents you, you know magic and the capability of forward progress he he can see the future he's complaining that the dark ages don't have modern conveniences like toilets and power and all that stuff and he obviously can travel through time that's like something that's that's possible for him and yet he's doddering in some other ways like yes he has magic and he can make cool things happen in the world but he can't even get out of his own front door without getting tangled up in his beard (laughs) and so it's like you know he's like making this speech to arthur as they like march toward the castle where he's like you have to be using your mind and looking forward and knowing what direction you have in life by the way which direction is the castle and arthur's like it's (laughs) north it's the other way (laughs) yeah and he's like oh and he like turns around so it's like there's this really interesting dichotomy between sort of the wisdom that he represents on the one hand and the the lack of practical application that he has on the mm. other hand, which is really interesting because he get, he keeps getting tangled up in the beard on his face. So it's like he's yeah. so absorbed with this stuff that I also, I had the question, like, is he actually helping Arthur? <laughs> Do, I mean, does he actually help Arthur at all? Because it seems like there's one way of looking at it in which, yeah, he's preparing Arthur to become the kind of person who could be king. And there's another way of looking at it that if Arthur just... If he never met Merlin and just went about his life the way that he was going about his life, and that he would still wind up at the tournament, forgetting the sword, having to go back, and then pulling the sword from the stone. But then the question is, would he have been able to pull the sword from the stone if he hadn't had all this preparation? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Exactly. <laughs> you know, we don't know what destiny has in, in store for people. But it is really interesting that uh, Merlin says he's really all about the book learning, and then there's this absence of a practical mindset for him. And yet, on the other hand, every one of the challenges that he brings Arthur to actually winds up being a very practical challenge. He, he's, not, he's not intellectualizing about what it means to be a fish. He turns him into a fish and puts him in the water. And, you know, he is talking about existing between two planes, which I thought was so interesting. Mm, yeah. To and fro, stop and go. That's what makes the world go round. And so we have this story that I think symbolically Merlin is showing him 
how to exist between poles, which I think is such a beautiful thing for a ruler to have. Let he, mm-hmm. One of the lines is left and right. And day and night, that's what makes the world go round. It's like this existence between poles being trained to set him up for a ruler, for leadership. I think that's mm-hmm. just like such a really cool lesson. The point is it winds up being a really practical lesson mm-hmm. rather than an intellectual one, even though he claims to only have an intellectual interest. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the approach that Merlin takes in his kind of mentorship of Arthur, because I think it's a really interesting model for us as we're looking around our world for people to support us on our journey. One of the things that I notice is that Merlin is very dedicated to the book learning and to the cultivation of Arthur. He never actually asks Arthur, like, what do you want? What's important to you? And he's kind of driving Arthur's behavior in kind of an unclean way because he's only taking into account like his perspective and like his desires for the world. And so I get really interested about as we're looking for our own mentorship, having the ability to take what somebody says and take it for its face value and then integrate it into our own schemas and our own reality and still be um, capable of staying grounded in our own self and what we want for the world instead of kind of being tossed around by different subject matter experts and then ultimately ending up feeling really confused because each expert has conflicting advice, conflicting perspectives. I think that that's a really useful kind of awareness to kind of be in our own authenticity and taking in mentorship or advice or support from other people in our world. Totally. Well, and you can see that each person in Arthur's life has some story of what he should be doing. From the very first scene with Kay, like he should have stayed home and not be on the hunt. From the first scene with Merlin, he should be educating his mind and never Mm -hmm. mind the body. From the first scene with his father, Mm -hmm. he should be doing his chores and Mm -hmm. being home on time and helping his brother Kay with whatever he wants to. Can we just talk about how like that is a metaphor for the contemporary education system. Like kids are just showing up and being shooted on and then coming out the other side of their education like, okay, now who's going to tell me what to do? And I think that allowing other people in our world to shit on us is totally like, it's just a surefire way for us to end up in dissatisfaction. And I think it's, there's an amount of bravery that comes from looking inside and asking self like what is it that I want from my life and my world and then being able to act on it when I think that having other people kind of direct and instruct us maybe creates a little bit more safety especially since if it fails it's not me and my thing that I wanted to accomplish and like my way of being then I can kind of outsource blame a little bit yeah and it's interesting that Arthur I mean as a leader as a model for you know entrepreneurship or just leadership in one's life, he does that. He actually does do what he thinks is best for him through the story when he has strong feelings about what is best for him. Only mm-hmm. once does he ever get talked out of it, and that's when he's doing dishes and he is convinced by Merlin to sort of allow technology to happen and go on an adventure, and he gets in trouble for that. But then he, when he wants to become a squire, he becomes a squire and he shows back up to Merlin. And he says, look, I'm, I became a squire and he's so excited and he really wants that feedback. And Merlin gets so pissed off at him because he, he's not doing what he should be doing that he takes mm-hmm. off to Bermuda, leaves yeah. him behind, which totally. is kind of fucking abusive if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you, don't, you don't behave the way I want to, so I'm going to totally withdraw myself from your mm-hmm. reality. 
But yeah. again, is that um, willingness to behave in his own interest that does get him to become king at the end. So I just want to keep noticing mm-hmm. that. Yeah. What's totally. up, Paige? I'm so glad that you brought up the the scene of him being talked out of doing the dishes. I love that because we've been talking about it in previous episodes of the podcast about kind of the way that work gets done. Um, Mm. And he says, he's like, no, 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 I am here. These are my demerits. I'm here cleaning this kitchen, so I cannot go out and do learning. And Merlin's like, well, we'll just use some magic and we'll get these dishes clean and we'll go out and have our adventure. And Arthur tries to argue with him. He's like, no, but I'm supposed to do it. And then Merlin's like, who cares as long as it gets done? Yeah, totally. Because Merlin also in some ways represents like advancement and technology and, you know, the ability to do more in the future. This is like learning. This is learning's highest (laughs) and best is not just book learning, but how do we put it into practice in the world? Because you see, he's got a, he's got a working steam engine, a little steam engine toy in the beginning of the thing. That's essentially what's happening here is he's taking a technological approach to the the dishwashing thing. And why not just have mm-hmm. it automated, have them doing their own things? And you see uh, Arthur argue with him. No, th- this is mine. And this, I think, is a really powerful lesson for we humans to understand, especially entrepreneurially minded humans, because the idea that he's saying is like, no, the value of work is in me doing the hard work. That's mm-hmm. the important thing. And you see he's getting that from his dad. The boy's got to learn his lessons about hard work and going to the, the kitchen. And Merlin's like, no, as long as it gets done, who cares how it gets mm-hmm. done? And in, in fact, it is working. It's doing a great job until we have the Luddites come back at the end and recognize that he's not doing it. And then his dad comes in and he's like literally st- trying to stop progress. He's like trying to stand in the way of progress which we see, we actually see this echoed nowadays in, in technology mm-hmm. and people saying like, we can't have technology advance because we're going to lose our jobs. And that is like a very, um, that's a very real challenge that we're facing and we're increasingly going to be facing in our world over the next decades as technology becomes more and more capable of doing more and more things. We have people standing in the way because we're we're thinking that the value of work is in the doing of the work, the hardness mm-hmm. of the work. And it's the hardness of it, yeah. And, and not, not the outcome that is produced. And the problem with this kind of thinking is that we then can't find faster and easier ways to do work because every time we do that, we reduce the quote unquote amount of work that a person is to be done. And since the way that our economy works right now, I, I don't know, get started on that, but <laughs> you have people standing in the way of this progress because it's, it's, they can't see a way in which it's in their best interest to allow technology. So I thought mm-hmm. that was a really interesting little vignette that we saw. So what else? He becomes a bird and goes and he winds up in marvelous Mad Madam Mim's shack. I thought this was a really interesting thing in this story was that ordinarily we see the hero has the dark night of the soul. And you'll see this again and again in all the Marvel movies, everything that takes a mythic archetypal story. You'll see there will be some part of the story where the hero loses faith or starts to lose faith in themselves. They start to wonder if they're going to be good enough or up for the challenge of whatever the thing is. And they'll start to lose faith. And then that'll usually be like a transformational moment in the story. What's interesting in this story is that ordinarily it happens inside the hero. But in this story, we have it happening almost in representation of his two sides of his conscience coming out between Merlin and Mad Madam Mim. One force of order and life and progress in the world and one force of death and decay and disease in the world. And they actually fight it out to see who will win. 
in the world. And I think that's a really interesting way that this plays out. And that's a really fun scene, actually. They're like each one trying to transform to outdo the other one. Honestly, Mad Madam Mim is better at it. She keeps picking like the, the rock to his scissor. Every time he transforms, she picks the next thing. But he uses whatever form he happens to be in and the brilliance of his mind to turn that form against her. And I think that's really interesting. And then in the end, he becomes some disease that he knows from the 20th mm-hmm. century <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> doesn't cheat, but he outsmarts her and then yeah. wins from that and yeah. also doesn't kill I, I, her. Yeah. I, I think it's indicative of just the value of kind of personal development in general and of self-education, having access to lots of different knowledge. Like even when we talk about, you know, this story is kind of like the contrast or like polarities between like brain versus brawn. But I think it's really interesting that even the most celebrated war histories of all time are celebrated for their intellect, for their like capacity for strategy, not for their physical strength. And so I think that Merlin winning this battle is kind of a, a testament to the value of kind of personal development um, education, knowledge, awareness, etc. Yeah. And, and actually I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's a big part of why symbolically in the story and what it has to teach us is how does he train Arthur to become worthy of being a king or a leader in his own life or in the lives of others? He puts him into different situations, vastly different situations and has him essentially figure it out. He doesn't teach him mm-hmm. anything Really, he starts, he gives him some of the principles and helps him get started in the various different mediums. He you know, teaches him how to swim as a fish, kind of, t- he tries to teach him how to jump from limb to limb, although Arthur kind of has it from the get go. In fact, Merlin's the one who doesn't know how to jump from limb to limb. So he kind of t- teaches him how to get started in the form, but then he sort of just watches and lets, lets the kid do whatever he's going to do. He doesn't even really protect him because the fish almost gets him. If Archimedes doesn't jump in and save him, that fish would have probably eaten him. The point that I'm making is I think there's something really valuable about trying out different mediums of expression. I think that's one of the symbolic lessons Mm -hmm. of this in terms of becoming the kind of person who is worthy to lead our lives, to lead whether it be ourselves or our companies or even the world at large, our communities or whatever, becoming the kind of person who can do that I think means Mm -hmm. becoming the kind of person who can figure out a variety of different situations with completely different rules of the game Mm -hmm. in each situation. Mm -hmm. And that that is kind of what his training is really all about. Yeah. I want to add on to that, that each lesson that he goes through has in common is that he is going out into the world and doing things. And I think that what's important to me about that part of the story is it's really tempting to try and like sit behind closed doors and intellectualize something and kind of perfect it and then go out into the world and try it, then go out into the risk. But we can't perfect ourselves in isolation. Like we can't be perfected in a vacuum. We have to go out and like jump across those branches and land in the arms of temptation and then kind of rip yourself from that temptation and keep moving forward towards towards what you want and I I just love like the again like the practicality of going and trying things and just not being afraid to fail not being afraid to like look silly I think that that's just such a really really powerful metaphor or like a really powerful message for people absolutely it's safe to go in the book learning it's Mm -hmm. safe to be oh yeah, I could just have some story that like, I could just learn well enough 
from my books that I mm-hmm. I don't ever have to face a risk. I don't ever have to be mm-hmm. in a risky situation. And you mm-hmm. can see that there would be no way for him to plan for that that barracuda. Merlin does. What in the world is that fish doing in that moat? That shouldn't have been there, he says, mm-hmm. right? As, and I'm going to go back there and teach him a lesson now that I've got my wand back, you know? But, but the idea being that there's no amount of planning that you can possibly do that will prevent the world from throwing curveballs your way, that will prevent you mm-hmm. from having to face the risk. Because going into the water, I, I love this like kind of symbolic metaphor, um, is he goes into the water, the deep, the representation of the deep. It's like the unknown. You can look at the water, but you can't see below the surface of the water. Like it's just not mm-hmm. the way that the visual field works. You don't know what's going on under the water until you actually go in under the water. You can only hypothesize about it. And so that's scary mm-hmm. for us. That represents like this unknown part uh, in our subconscious minds. And that is like what it means to take an entrepreneurial journey. That's what it means to go and make a new friend in a strange place to go travel and be immersed somewhere. It's very scary to do that because we don't know what's lurking. And I think that the fish represents the monster that we worry is in the depths when we take mm-hmm. the plunge, so to totally, speak. Totally, yeah. 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 And, so what do you think, what, what's to be done about that? When we're in a world where there are inherent risks, how do we get ourselves to show up anyway? Uh, cannonball. once you're in the water you're in the water you know what i mean i think this is my perspective in general i want to get in that water as quickly as possible you know you see me all the time when when there's like cold water i'm not gonna get in incrementally because then i have to make so many decisions and i could talk myself out of it at every single decision point i'm just gonna dive in head first if i can reasonably believe that it'll be safe and butt first if i can't you know what i mean Totally. I think for me, I think that there is um, like a clarity of intention that wants to be in place before I can kind of inspire myself to show up even when it's scary. So I think that doing kind of visualization about what's important to me in the world and what is the outcome that I want and be really hyped up about having that thing exist in my reality so that when I'm showing up and taking scary action, I know what is this scary action what is this potentially risky thing in service to? And then I'll feel more inspired. And I think sometimes um, sometimes I think it's hard for people to kind of envision their future. I think that not everybody is doing that work regularly and they're kind of going about without a lot of intention. Well, and Arthur's not envisioning his future. He knows that he wants to be a squire, but he's not really like off playing in the future of that. He's like living his day-to-day around what that means. Mm -hmm. I think this is actually one benefit of a character like Merlin or a coach or someone to challenge you to get out of your comfort zone because that's what happens. Merlin takes the choice off of his plate, basically. He transforms him into a fish and plops him into the water. and And then from there, the choice is survive or give up. And so Mm -hmm. I think there's something very powerful about being in a relationship with someone who's going to challenge you to get out of your comfort zone, who's going to see you because going back to the, like the trying to plan and prep and prepare, there's no one challenging you when you're with yourself Mm -hmm. and you're, you're with a book. So unless you intrinsically challenge yourself and a lot of people have a hard time doing that, you know, through no fault of our own, we're, our brains are designed to keep us safe. 
And mm-hmm. so to enter into a relationship or to make a decision to put yourself in an environment, especially socially, where you have that thing, think about how many people say, like, if I put something on my own calendar, I probably won't show up to it. But if I put something on my calendar with somebody else, I'm never going to miss it. Mm-hmm. How many people would say that that thing is true for them? Right? Yeah. Great. Awesome. Let's use that environment. Let's put ourselves in a situation where we have somebody we who we've committed to show up to, and then they're going to put us, push us out of our comfort zone so that we have oh, to adapt to whatever reality we find in ourselves. I really appreciate that. I was just at coffee this morning and with a bunch of local girls, and that was like a theme of our conversation this morning of just when we're alone, our opportunities for growth and development are so much fewer. And so we were like mutually appreciating each other for just being around and kind of opening our eyes and encouraging each other to like get out of our comfort zone. It was really sweet. That's nice. That's really nice. Yeah. Well, so that's, uh, that's all I had for the lessons from the sword and the stone. Anything else to add in conclusion, Paigey? No, we hit on all the things I wanted to hit on. Yeah, it's uh, it's really great. I, I was surprised at how rich this was symbolically as I was going through it last night because, you know, we've been watching some of the more musical and kind of later ones recently. And I think those are very mm-hmm. much more like story and action oriented. And there's the symbols still exist there, obviously. But this one was just very rich. It was done in more of an old time style. And so the story was really driving it rather than the animation or any of that other stuff. So mm-hmm. really great yeah. story. Highly recommend you go back and check it out. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, hit us up in the DMs on Instagram at lucid underscore shift underscore coaching and live your freedom and love your life. Thanks so much for listening to the Shift to Freedom podcast. If you want to get the most out of your time here, think about this. What's the one thing from this episode that resonated the most for you? Asking that simple question can help anchor in your insights and remember who you want to be. If there was even a single thought in today's episode that helps you to become even 1% more free, then we are thrilled. If so, would you do us a favor? We're on a mission to spread the message of freedom and we could use your help. See, the algorithms love it when we get reviews, shares, comments, and likes, and then that helps other people like you to find the podcast and just maybe change their lives. So if you like what we're doing and you want to generate some positive karma for the day, please write us a review wherever you get your podcast love. See you next week. And in the meantime, live your freedom and love your life.